wonderful to be with you on this July the 4th and to talk about our country a bit. In reality, there are few places on earth that have the foundation of personal liberty, personal freedom that America enjoys, has enjoyed for over 200 years. The Declaration of Independence, which we're celebrating this weekend and in the next couple of days, has led to another marvelous document called the Bill of Rights. It's something that I want us to pause today and consider that we are one of the few places on earth that have anything like it as its foundation. We just experienced as a church a situation where, to some degree, we felt threatened by the state. But we were able to hold up the law and hold up the law and the state had to recognize that their power was limited by the law. That they couldn't just say, oh, we want it that way. We desire it that way. Do you know how rare that is in the world? How rare that is in the world to have to live in a place where the people can say we have the law, that the people can actually challenge their own government? Of course, it's not perfect. And of course, it doesn't happen everywhere. Sometimes government oversteps its bounds. Of course, it doesn't work perfectly. But most countries in the world, for the big majority of the world, whoever is in power does pretty much whatever they want to do. This is a great country. You need to know, though, that people suffered. People suffered in great hardships. And people even died for the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. Let's just go over the Bill of Rights. Let's review that. Sometimes we need to do that. First of all, we have the freedom of religion, freedom of speech, the freedom of the press, and freedom of assembly and petition. The United States can't make any law about your religion or stop you from practicing your religion or keep you from saying whatever you want to say or publishing whatever you want to publish or tweeting whatever you want to tweet. <laughs> uh, Congress can't stop you from meeting peacefully for a demonstration to ask the government to change something. Do you know how... What a precious right that is. You have the right to keep and bear arms. Not, that's not just in the summertime. You can do it all year. Congress can't stop people from having, having weapons because we need to be able to defend ourselves. That's a marvelous law that doesn't exist in a lot of places. What about number three? No quartering of soldiers. You don't have to let soldiers live in your house. Have you ever thanked God for that? <laughs> You don't have to let soldiers live in their house, and, and except if there's a war. And even then, even if there's a war, the United States Congress has to pass a special law about that before soldiers can come and live in your house. What about the freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures? Nobody can just search your body or your house or your papers or your things unless they can prove to a judge that they have a good reason to think you've committed a crime. What about the right to due process of law? The freedom from self-incrimination and double jeopardy. You can't be tried for any serious crime without a grand jury meeting first to decide whether there's enough evidence for a trial. And if the jury decides you're innocent, the, the government can't just, they can't just say, well, we're going to have another trial. And, 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 and they, they can't do that. You, you don't have to say anything at your trial if you don't want to. 
You can't be killed or put in jail or fined unless you're convicted of a crime by a jury. And the government can't take your house or your farm or anything that's yours unless the government pays for it. Do you realize that just these things don't happen in many, many, many countries in many, many parts of the world? I really believe that our founding fathers were directed by God to create a form of government that is closer to closer to Scripture than any other constitution in the world that I'm aware of. Number six in the, in the Bill of Rights is the rights of accused person to a speedy and public trial. If you're arrested, you have a right to have your trial pretty soon. And the government can't keep you in jail without trying you. The trial has to be public so everyone knows what's happening. The case has to be cited by a jury of ordinary people from your area. You have the right to know what you're being accused, accused of, to see and hear the people who are witnesses against you, to have the government help you get witnesses on your side, and you have the right to a lawyer to help you. In fact, if you don't have the money, the government will pay for you to have a lawyer who will represent you. And I've met many of these public defenders. They work really hard and they take it very seriously. And some of them are just as good as the ones that you pay for. You have a right to trial by jury even in civil cases. That's mean you have a right to a jury when it's a civil case, a law between two people rather than between you and the government. You have that right. Number eight in the Bill of Rights is you have the freedom from excessive bail or cruel and unusual punishment. The government can't make you pay more that is unreasonable in bail or fines, and the government can't order you to have cruel or unusual punishment, like torture, you know, because you went too fast down the highway or something. Even if you're convicted of a crime, they don't have the right to torture you. Number nine is really important, because number nine in the Bill of Rights is the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or di disparage others others retained by the people. In other words, that's a complicated way of saying that there's a whole lot of rights that aren't going to be listed in the Bill of Rights that you have a right to, like the right of privacy and things like that. that you, can, you can claim other rights that aren't even listed in the Bill of Rights. Imagine a government who built its government with, with, a, with the idea that it would be government by the people for the people. And number 10 in the Bill of Rights is powers reserved to the states. In other words, anything that the Constitution doesn't say that Congress can do should be left up to the, to the states or the people. And we, we see all kinds of back and forth on this right now uh, about sanctuary cities and other things where there's this back and forth. Well, does the federal government have a right or the state have the right? And uh, thank God we, we're in a place where we actually have that argument going on and that debate going on. Uh, what a marvelous thing. But for us to have today what we have, some men and women a long time ago had to believe this way of life. They had to believe that this way of life was worth suffering and dying for. They had to believe that being under the king's crown, being under King George and the king's crown, and taxation without representation wasn't right, wasn't fair, and so they stood up to, to King George and they stood up to, to England and they were willing to die. John Adams wrote the following as they were finishing up the Declaration of Independence. And he thought, he thought we would be celebrating July the 2nd instead of July the 4th. So he starts off by saying the second day of July 1776 will be a memorable epoch in the history of America. 
I am apt to believe that it will be separated by succeeding generations. It's very important, circle that, succeeding generations. They were doing something for legacy. They were doing something for the future as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp, shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, illuminations from one end of the continent to the other from this time forward forever. You will think me transported with enthusiasm, but I am not. In other words, I'm not crazy. I've lost my mind. I am well aware of the toil and blood and treasure that it will cost us to maintain this declaration and support and defend these states. Yet through all the gloom, I can see the rays of light and glory. I can see that the end is more than worth all the means and that posterity will triumph, although you and I may rue, which I hope we shall not. John Adams was saying, this is worth dying for. This is worth suffering for. Something bad happens to a people who no longer have anything worth dying for. Something bad happens to a person when they no longer have anything that's more important than themselves. 51,000 people died in the Revolutionary War, either in battle or from disease, which was one in 20 of free white males living in the colonies. Only 3 million people lived in the colonies, by the way. That's uh, less people than in many of our cities in America today. The Declaration of Independence contended that King George was abusing his God-given power as leader of England and the American colonies. It was their responsibility as decent men, they stated in this document that we just read part of, to challenge him for the sake of his subject. Benjamin Franklin recommended himself recommended a national motto in defense of their action, which would say, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. I know that sometimes we paint, some people want to paint the founding fathers as evangelical, on-fire Christians, which they were not, most of them. But there was a sense of God woven throughout their actions and their words and the words that they wrote. There was a sense of calling on and believing in the presence of God. And for that, they were willing to die. And I want to make the connection today that their belief in immortality, their belief in God, that, and the intervention and power of God enabled them to be people who had something worth dying for. I just found in my research some specific names of people who sacrificed, besides those 51,000 who died. There was many who, who suffered many things. Thomas Hayward Jr. of South Carolina, along with a fellow South Carolinian, Edward Rutledge and Arthur Middleton were taken prisoner in the siege of Charleston and held till the, year, till the war was over. Richard Stockton in, of New Jersey had his home overrun by the British invasion. He managed to get his family to safety, but he was captured, and, spe and specifically because he signed the Declaration of Independence. He remained in prison for years, the last half of which he nearly starved and froze to death. In, in terrible health, he was released and returned to his home to find that all his fortunes, his crops, his livestock were taken or destroyed, and his library, which was one of the colony's best libraries, was burned. John Witherspoon of New Jersey, an active clergyman and president of the College of New Jersey, later to become Princeton University, 
was shut down and evacuated when the British troops invaded that area and took over the school. He spent most of the rest of his life rebuilding what they tore down. He also lost his son James in the Battle of Germantown. Thomas McKean of Delaware led an army the day after signing the Declaration to help George Washington in the defense of New York City and narrowly escaped with his life from cannon fire. And the next year, he was on the run from the British, having to move his family five times in a year. These were very real stresses that these people were going through to have the liberty that we have today. Lewis Morris of New York lost almost all of his property and wealth in the war, much of it within just two months of signing the Declaration of Independence. He served as Brigadier General during the war and spent nearly all his post-war days working to rebuild his property and farmlands. His wife, who wasn't very strong to start with, was imprisoned by the British and never recovered her health. By the way, I don't think I set this up to say I'm talking about people who signed the Declaration of Independence to show you the price that they paid. And these weren't men who were going to probably go to war, but these were leaders of the community. Philip Livingston of New York was forced from, his resi from residence to residence by the British. His first two homes became British barracks and a British hospital. The other two homes were burned to the ground. In addition to the property he lost, he lost to the enemy. He sold several others to support his colonial effort and died suddenly in 1778 before he could rebuild anything. Lyman Hall, on the advice of General Washington, took his wife and son and fled his Georgia home for Connecticut, where he remained for a couple of years until the war was over. He returned to his property in Georgia, but he lost most of it uh, because of the, what had happened in the war. Many people, like Carter Braxton of Virginia, and, and, uh, invested all their wealth, all the wealth they had, they invested in the war effort and never recovered their wealth. Robert Morris of Pennsylvania was another one who never recovered his pre-war wealth. His investment, though, helped turn the tide in favor of the Americans and helped establish the United States as a nation. These people believed in what they were doing, and it wasn't about them. It was about you. Ben Franklin said, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Now, most of us struggle when hardship precedes happiness and cost precedes consumption. Modern culture, we have flipped what was normal, more normal in ancient cultures. Ancient cultures, people seldom partook before they paid. Or if they, they paid, they paid a long time and a lot before they ever got the joy of what they invested in. Look at any area of life in ancient cultures, food. Today, at worst, we go to a fast food in place and we, we order our food and we get to the window and the payment and the food converge. Or you go to a restaurant and you order your food and... You eat it, the meal, and then you pay for it, unless you complain about it. And then you don't. The, the other night we were at a restaurant, the staff and I, and we were uh, on our annual sermon planning retreat. We went to a restaurant, and I didn't get, they didn't bring me what I ordered, but I, but I ate it anyway. And when, I, when we shared it with the waitress, she came back and said, we took that off the bill which I was glad. It was kind of costly. I was really happy that I ate food. It was free. 
But ancient cultures, I mean, you had to go out into the woods and traipse around for a few hours and you hope you could kill something and then you brought it back and you had to, you had to clean it and dress it and prepare it and then, then you had to cook it. and might, It might be a couple days, you know, a couple days of effort to get one great meal. You paid a price for everything. Water, what about water? I mean, we just have bottles of water everywhere. We, we, have, we just go over and turn on the tap and water just comes out. And we don't even think about it. And compared to all the water we use, the water bill is really pretty small. And we just, we didn't even think, we don't, we don't really pay much of a price for water. But cultures, ancient cultures, you paid, and the, and the colonialists, they paid a big price to get a clean drink of water or to have water to wash their clothes. And what about personal hygiene? I and mean, we just, we don't think anything about it. I mean, most of you take a shower every day. I, I like that when you take a shower every day. That's good. You don't even think about it. Do you, ever, do you ever jump in the shower and you think about, for most of history, people didn't just jump in the shower. You know, they had a, they, at best, they had three bedrooms and a path instead of three bedrooms and a bath, you know? They didn't, they didn't, they'd go down to the river. And I, I remember one time we, we were in a situation, my brother and I, we went and preached for this guy and he let us stay in his old home place. We thought that sounded pretty good to sleep in his old home place, you know? So we go down into Silex, Missouri, and we, my brother goes, where's the bathroom? And we start looking around. There wasn't one in the house. Well, you know, where's the shower? Where's the bathtub? There wasn't one. There was a little faucet sticking out of the floor in the back like that. And we, we, we preached there for like two weeks, and we went to the creek every day and took a bath. Went down the creek, and then it rained, and it came a big storm and a flood, and the creek, the creek flooded, and we couldn't take a bath. That's about the, that's about the only brush I've had. That, that's why the, the roughest outdoor thing I do is play golf. That's as, that's, as, that's as difficult and strenuous and troublesome as I want to get, is, is having to get back to that clubhouse to go to the bathroom, you know? Housing. What about housing? Transportation. Do you realize the price people used to pay to get anywhere? We think nothing about getting our cars and being 40 miles away, an hour away, or jumping on an airplane and being halfway across the country. We think nothing about it today. We're not used to paying a price. And what about relationships? It used to be a lot of work to communicate with people. People used to have to pay a real big price to get, I mean, I mean, you, you know the story of, about uh, Waterloo and, and, uh, and, Napoleon Bonaparte uh, getting defeated at Waterloo by, what's the guy's name? It just went left me. Somebody. What? Wellington, yeah. You, you remember that story about the smoke signals? They sent smoke signals to let, the, let the, the people in England know that Napoleon had been defeated. And it, it said, uh, they put the words, Wellington defeated Napoleon. But a fog came up and all the people read was Wellington defeated and all of England went into mourning. And it was only the next day that they realized Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. 
because they didn't see the whole message. So it was really difficult to communicate. Now we communicate. And of course, there, it used to, people used to wait for sex. They used to wait. You, know, you, wait, you waited until marriage. Most of culture, they waited till marriage. They had some sort of marriage ceremony. Now people don't wait on that anymore. You know, we, we don't, we're not used to waiting on anything. Remember the story of Jacob and Rachel? Jacob dates Rachel seven years before he gets to spend the night with her. Seven years. And then his father-in-law tricked him and gave him, gave him her, her older sister. Imagine that. And, and, and he said he loved Rachel so much that it seemed but a day. He loved her so much that it seemed but a day that, well, I want to go into it. He waited seven years. Many people think he got to marry her within a week. And some people think the Bible means that she had to wait 14 years. So whether it's eight years or 14, it's kind of irrelevant, right? That's a long time. Not, not culture today. According to an article in, in New York Magazine, up to 80% of college students report engaging in sexual acts outside of committed, committed relationships. 80%. In fact, many they're reporting are having, having more sex than actual dates. They're having more hookups. It's a hookup culture. We've lost something in our culture by not understanding what it means to pay a price for what you want. We've lost something. We've lost something. We've lost the meaning of life. We've lost the meaning of liberty. We've lost the meaning of joy. I remember I got in on the culture that didn't use credit cards. You know, I was, I was, I'm old enough to remember when we didn't use credit cards. Credit cards, you get what you want. You play now and pay later, you know. I remember... Uh, wanting a baseball glove. I was a kid. And the hardware store downtown, McKinney, sold baseball gloves. And so I saw a baseball glove I wanted, and I told the guy I wanted to buy the glove, and he said, fine. I said, I don't have the money. He said, well, bring me 50 cents a week. So I brought him 50 cents a week for I don't know how many weeks. I brought him 50 cents a week so I could have my baseball glove. And I love that baseball glove because I paid for it for a long time before I got to enjoy it. We've lost that culture, but have we also lost our ability to understand that some things are worth paying a price for? Have we lost our ability to understand? I'm not suggesting all of these cultural norms that we have now are evil, but what I'm suggesting is it's become more and more foreign to think of sacrificing the present for the future and more and more common to sacrifice the future for the present. We, we put things on our credit card we really can't afford. We get all involved with all these people we have physical relationships with that just, just mess up our lives. We get married and we're shocked that we have to build a marriage in order to have one. We're shocked that we have to develop, we have to learn to like, like each other, and, and we love each other, but now we've got to learn to like each other. You know, that it, if falling in love is a dream, then marriage is an alarm clock. <laughs> and, and young couples are getting married now, and they, they don't understand that we're going to have to pay a price to build a good marriage. If we're going to have a good marriage, we're going to have to give, give up some of our rights. 
We're going to have to change the way we look at things. We're going to have to care about the other person's happiness. You can't have a happy marriage and only care about your own happiness. That is not possible. That is not possible. Life has an order. And the order, listen to me, the order is sacrifice before reward, pain before pleasure, and sometimes even death before life. The, The theme of sacrifice before you enjoy and always having a cause that is greater than yourself is woven through every page of Scripture. It's woven through every page of Scripture. Let's talk for a minute about what God thinks of all this. All the founding fathers weren't Christians, but there was a cultural agreement that Almighty God would bless the people who did the right thing, even when some had to die for it. There are four references to God in the Declaration of Independence. First of all, it refers to the laws of nature and nature's God. It also speaks of entitling the United States to independence. It says that men and women are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. It also says that Congress appeals to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. It also says the signers with a firm reliance on the protection of divine Providence pledged to each other their lives, their fortune, and their sacred honor. Don't let anybody tell you that America doesn't owe its success and doesn't owe what we have and what we have had to a belief in an almighty and eternal God. It is just inaccurate. And furthermore, we will lose our, our, our freedom, our liberty, and our, our prosperity as a nation if we do not call on God. And we don't, once again, include God in our conversation. I don't mean that we have to become a theocracy. I don't mean that we can't still be a plurality. I don't mean that we can't have a representation of many, many religions and also honor those people who have no religion and no beliefs. That is another thing I love about the Constitution. But we must not believe. We must not silence the message of the gospel. We must not silence the message of God in our culture. The government that was launched in 1776 will not work without a God who blesses a God who blesses sacrifice, honors effort, and transforms the blood of martyrs into the seeds of greatness for the future of a nation. We have nothing worth dying for today because we do not have a right relationship or a right view of God. Whether we're dying literally or figuratively through service or the giving up of our rights, it's not sustainable without a miracle-working immortal God. When there's nothing worth dying for, it's because we have lost faith in a God who transforms sacrifice into liberty and justice for all. Many of us do not believe God, probably even in this room. Some of us, maybe. Many of us do not believe God. We believe in God. But that's not the same as believing God. You can believe in God, but not believe God. 
You can believe in God in that I believe he created the world. I believe he's a good person, a good being. Maybe you don't call God a person. He's a good being. He's good. He's kind. He's loving. You can believe all of those things. You believe in him, I mean. But when you believe him, then you believe his word. You believe his promises. You believe his directives. You believe his commands. And so you obey his commands because you don't just believe in him, but you believe him. You believe he speaks the truth. And when he promises immortality, you believe it. When he promises blessing for obedience, you believe it. Even though the blessing is delayed and the gratification is always delayed. Obedience always comes first. Doing the right thing becomes before blessing. And sometimes there's a large gap between obedience and blessing. Sometimes there's a large gap between sacrifice and experiencing the product of that sacrifice. Let me tell you something. The Bible says that we are to pray the Lord of the harvest. God is the Lord, the Lord of the harvest. God is the Lord of the harvest. Seed time and harvest is how he operates. You have a pretty wacky garden if you reap before you plant. You've discovered something that no one else has ever discovered. How to, how to collect tomatoes when you never put any tomato plants in the ground. That doesn't happen, does it? Does that happen to anybody in here? That you don't have to toil, till the soil Fertilize the soil, plant, water, do all kinds of things. And then weeks later, you reap a harvest. That's how life is supposed to work. You're supposed to be miserable sometimes. You're supposed to be unhappy sometimes. You're supposed to be stressed sometimes. You're supposed to be in pain sometimes. You're supposed to feel deprived sometimes. You're supposed to be tired sometimes. That's what great teams know. That's what great churches know. That's what great people know. They know there's nobility in sacrifice. There's nobility in paying a price. Romans 2, 6 says, God will give to each person according to what he has done to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. He will give eternal life for those who are self-seeking and those who reject the truth and follow evil. But for those, I should have said, who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Look at those words, glory, Honor, immortality, eternal life. Our founding fathers may not have believed the Bible exactly as I do. They may not have followed Jesus as I and many of us do. But they believed in glory, honor, immortality, and eternity. They believed in those four words. To seek glory is to be remembered for noble actions that bring dignity. That's what those framers understood. They understood that they were to bring dignity to every person 
who was born in this country. Every person was created equal and were given unalienable rights by their creator. That is the mission of the church. You wonder why Bethany Community Church, why we try to do all the things we do in the community? Not because we believe we're going to disciple everyone. We are not going to disciple everyone as followers of Jesus. But we are called by our creator to give every person dignity. We're called by a creator to bestow every person on the street, woman, child, I don't care their, their lifestyle, I don't care their color of their skin, we are called by God to give them dignity. And we're called to take actions and give people dignity. And it will, it will revolutionize some people's life if you will begin to accept the calling of God to give every person dignity. Amen? Let's give the word a hand. To seek honor means to be remembered for action that brings lasting value. I don't really care if I get a plaque anywhere with my name on it, you know, after I'm gone. I don't really care. I doubt very seriously I'm going to get a statue. I don't see that coming. <laughs> I don't really care uh, if, if, if I have a tombstone. I don't really care if it says something incredible on it or not. But I would like to live in such a way that that could happen. I'd like to live in such a way that there might actually be a discussion about putting a statue of me somewhere. We might actually, what should we do? This man gave his life for other people. Oh, do you ever think about honor? In living a life of honor, that's better than money. That's better than wealth. What about seeking immortality? Seeking immortality is when our ultimate good is offering others the gift of eternal life. That's the ultimate. That's that's what the framers did not talk about. That's what they could not do. That's the church's job. To give, offer people eternal life. But they did think in terms of eternity. They did think about it in the terms of posterity and what they were doing lasting from generation to generation to generation to generation. They did not overthink their own need to be fat and happy like many in America are doing today. And we need to shift. Jesus could only go to the cross by believing and reaching for immortality. We can only reach for immortality when we have something worth dying for. Paul didn't just talk about this. He demonstrated by going to Jerusalem when suffering was almost certain. He said in Acts chapter 21, after we have been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When he heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. After this, uh, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. 
After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Jason where we were, staying, we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. Let me ask you a few questions in closing this message today. What is the cause that is bigger than yourself or myself? What right, privilege, or pleasure in my present circumstances is more important to me than the happiness and success of the future? What noble action could I take that would bring dignity and value to others? What is comforting, pleasurable, or easy now that will appear foolish, worthless, or shameful in the future? What if we purpose today to move beyond the works for me culture and we truly gave ourselves to noble causes? I know it sounds hard, but what if a whole church started engaging in it? What if, a, what if it spread and a whole town started thinking transcendently? And what if a whole community started engaging in transcendent thinking? And what if a whole state started engaging in transcendent thinking? And a whole region and a whole country, it's what renewal of the kingdom of God is going to look like. It's already starting to happen. A person who humbles themselves beneath a greater cause, the Bible is called meek. And the Bible says, the meek. Those who don't claim their own rights, the meek will inherit the earth. That's the good news. The bullies aren't going to inherit the earth. The meek are going to inherit the earth. We used to have several invitations when we preached when I was young in the church. We were, we were invited to receive Christ, or we were invited to receive the Holy Spirit, or we were invited to dedicate our life to service. Today's message in the old days would be me inviting you to dedicate your life to serve. How many of you would do that today? How many of you would dedicate or rededicate your life to the call of God on your life? Today, I want us to pray, God, show me a reason for being here that is bigger than me and something that will outlast me. Show me the bigger thing that I'm supposed to be making successful that's bigger than me. We're going to pray for you today. And as we, our prayer partners are here waiting on you, uh, they're here to pray for you about anything that's going on in your life. If you're sick in your body, please come up and be prayed for. If you're having problems and with your finances, please come up and be prayed for. We want to pray the prayer of faith over you and bless you. We want to pronounce a blessing on your life. Or maybe some of you heard this message and you realize, you know, I've put this little circle around myself. And I'm living inside that circle. And I'm judging life by how happy things are in that circle. And I know God is calling me to lift my eyes up and see the world around me that needs to be blessed with dignity and be blessed with grace. And the people that I need to have some maybe difficult conversations with because they're headed in a wrong path and I need to help them. But I got to start thinking about somebody besides myself. And that would be a bold, bold uh, admission today. But the Bible says if we confess our faults to one another, pray for him, and we'll be healed. So God would just like to heal that brokenness in you that's caused you to be so self-absorbed. And he will. He will. He'll meet you at your point of repentance.
He really will. So I want you to come today and be prayed for. Let's enter into response time. Father, in Jesus' name, we enter into a response time. We're going to respond to your word, and you're going to respond to us. We do it now. You have been listening to the Bethany Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us online at bccma.org. Thank you, and God bless.